0: So, good evening, everybody. Good evening. I hope you've all had a wonderful last two weeks. Two weeks? Two weeks. Um, yeah, I was just saying the last time we had a lot of snow when I was here, and now it's like summertime almost. Um, today is class four out of five. So I realized after I had spoken last class that this is actually only a five class series. I had thought it was six, so apologies. Um, So yeah, hopefully we're slowly getting to the point where we've, um, we've deepened, or we're beginning to deepen our understanding of the practice, of what it is actually that we're doing here, of kind of some of the methods and techniques of getting into the practice. And hopefully some of us are actually even practicing outside of this class. Is anybody doing that? A couple? A little bit? I saw some, like, iffy hands. Um, yeah. So I'm coming from another... Uh, I call like a, a marathon teaching run. Um, some Tuesdays I go to a middle school in, uh, in Woburn, or I go to a couple middle schools in Woburn, and I teach like six classes. Um, so I do three classes, do a lunch break, then do three classes, then come here. Um, and it's really interesting teaching the, um, I guess they're like 11 to 13 year olds. 11 to 14 maybe even, eleven thirteen, to 13. And, um, you know, the blocks there are about 45 minutes long, maybe even a little more, maybe an hour. And I always make sure to do at least one meditation per class, but the meditations only last between, you know, seven and ten minutes, depending. So I have often, you know, another 40 minutes to... Just kind of hang out and chat and see what 's going on, so it was just really interesting at some of the directions that that the whole thing takes. I saw with my first class this morning we were talking about um, I was talking about being a monk and how we didn 't kill anything, and people were like, Well, what about bugs and spiders and I said well that's you know still killing, and those beings still you know if you clap your hands and your spider runs away they they're Afraid they have feelings too, right? And they said, "Well, what if a bee stings you and then it dies?" And I said, "Well, that's like something committing suicide on your body. That's not. It's not really your fault." Um, and then it kind of opened up this talk um, about nonviolence, about really, you know, taking a new position on how we interact with life. And that I forget exactly what the. What the, um, what the segue was, but it kind of also turned into a talk about good and bad. And I was saying to them, you know, that, that there is no good or bad, that good or bad are just kind of arbitrary judgments. And um, in this past weekend, I was, um, I was involved in a, a ceremony. So we, had a, we did like a fire and we had like Native American drum, and actually I think I was involved in two ceremonies. Um, And it was really interesting during this time that I was playing this drum, and I was noticing that when the sun was behind the drum, I could see the shadow of my hand holding the drum from behind it, so it was almost like a a silhouette of my hand through the drum. And then when I was facing the other way, um, I was seeing the hand that was beating the drum with the previously silhouetted hand now facing me, and the other hand was beating the drum. And I just had this interesting moment of doing that and almost thinking like, you know, America, Iraq or something like this. Like it was this feeling of um, that the other, the thing on the other side, to you it seems like the shadow side, right? That this idea of good or bad or kind of hero and villain or enemy and friend, how relative that stuff is. And it all kind of depends on which side of it you're on. Um, you know, every side thinks that they're, that they're the good guys, I guess you could say. Um, and just this idea of it's about perception, that kind of a lot of what we call good and bad is just perception. And I was saying to the kids, yeah, well, you know, there's, you know, there's really nothing that you could call all good or all bad. And, um, and then one of them said, you know, and they started challenging me on this, these like 11-year-olds, right? They're like, well, what about a serial killer? That's bad. And I said, well, the times that that person killed other people, that was a bad thing they did, but the person's not bad. Because I'm sure that person also did good stuff in their life. I'm sure if you looked at that person's whole life, they did both good and bad stuff. They probably had a family. They probably had people that loved them. Maybe they had a dog when they were growing up. Who knows? They probably also had goodness in them, but also they did acts that were harming others, that killed people. That was really, yeah. And then one girl said, what about world peace? Isn't that good? And I was like, "Ooh, wow, okay. Leave it to the 11-year-olds, right? So I felt into that for a moment, and I said, yeah, you know what? World peace is, is a great thing that we're definitely striving for. And also, I think that Conflict is incredibly valuable because I know a lot of families that don't like to talk about conflict and everything, you know, they try to make everything peaceful, right? There's peace. There's no, everything's okay. Nothing to see here, you know, but there's all of these really, you know, difficult, painful problems under the surface, but because we want to keep a peaceful facade, whether the parents want to feel like they're doing a good job, I'm a good mother, so I have a good family, so there's no problems here kind of thing. Right. or they just don't want to look at it, or we want to present something in a specific way, a lot of problems are really boiling up under the surface. And sometimes, actually, conflict, fighting, is very important. It's really the way for things to come up, and conflict doesn't, mean, doesn't have to mean violent conflict. You know. But conflict, it's often two things hitting together to find a new homeostasis, and that's sometimes incredibly necessary. So it was a very interesting time with just this one class, right? Um, and then I led a meditation, and then after the class was, after the meditation, this is the end of the class, a lot of the kids um, were saying that they were seeing colors. So, like, one girl was like, I see, like, yellow. And the other was like, yeah, yeah, I see yellow. And the other was I see red, I see blue. Like, as if something had happened and shifted in their vision, and they were all seeing colors in the room for some weird reason. And then I went to another class, and I talked to them, and I did meditation, and a lot of them were seeing like, they called it glitter, like stuff kind of doing this. And it was interesting, because in that same hallway when I was there a couple of weeks ago, I did a meditation. And the whole class, their right eye was crying. Just at the end of the meditation, everybody's right eye was dripping water, and they didn't know why. And it was this really interesting thing that I, every now and then when I'm teaching groups of kids in this one hallway, actually, so far, that they're all having like these really interesting similar experiences, but it's just weird. I said, maybe it's like a, you know, a vortex in that hallway. I don't know what's up. But, uh, but yeah, that there's kind of these group movements. So one of the classes I was trying to engage them was a class of eighth graders. <laughs> I always feel like eighth graders are a little bit standoffish. They're a little bit kind of too cool for school and uh, they didn't really want to engage. But I kind of sat down, I started talking to them, and then I kind of really felt into the class, and it was interesting because I almost had a switch of perspective, and I felt suddenly, actually I think eighth graders are just incredibly insecure, that they're really, really tender, really vulnerable, they're kind of shy for some reason, They're, they're shyer, they're I think maybe coming into maybe puberty does that, so suddenly you realize this whole thing about boys and girls, and kind of you have to readjust the way that you hold yourself and present yourself whereas the 6th and 7th graders they're still very much children in the sense of like they'll do or say anything and jump around and it doesn't really matter they're just all kind of on the same level but it's almost as if once they get to 8th grade there's this new level of social awareness that's starting to bud in that makes everybody almost kind of have to stop and look around and be like oh gosh like how have i been you know presenting myself you know what am i doing here so, um, so eventually, I got them going when I just started talking about ghosts. And just as like, "All right, anyone have any ghost stories? And everyone kind of their ears perked up. And, like, really? and I said, well, I have ghost stories. You want to hear it? And they're like, yeah. And they all got interested and kind of took it from there. Um, you know, different experiences that I've had in my life, but also recently a podcast I listened to. And it was a lot about um, kind of like last words, the last words of different people slash the experiences of a lot of people as they're dying. Seems like it's an incredibly common thing as people are in those last stages of life. They start to see and communicate with relatives that have already passed on. There's just tons and tons of reports of this, that people see this. And a lot of doctors think, oh, this is just hallucinations, but um, I talked to a hospice worker about this and he said, you know, if it's a hallucination, why wouldn't you see a pink bunny rabbit? You know, why? Why don't why not see anything? Why do they all happen to see deceased relatives? You know, that there's something more to it. Um, and also, interestingly enough, I had a, my father had a health scare a couple days ago, so we had to call the ambulance room and he's having trouble breathing, and he had, he had like a breathing mask for him and everything. But uh, when I spoke to him later with my mom, he said that at one point he just felt himself going down this long dark tube into a black box. I don't know what the black box is, but this idea of like going into a tube, you hear a lot also because it's like whether going down like a tunnel. You hear a lot of like people going down a tunnel towards like a light or going up like a cord. Um, So that there's a lot of kind of similarities in what people, you know, whether they have near-death experiences or whether just as they're dying or if they're in like a coma or something they kind of come out. There's a lot of similarities and when you speak to hospice workers, Um, I don't think I've ever actually spoke to a hospice worker about this that hasn't told me that, yeah, there's something that happens afterwards, that when you talk to people who that's their job is to kind of accompany people into death, to the door of death, um, very often you'll hear that they experience that there's something that happens on the other side, that sometimes even those people will reach back out to them shortly afterwards and kind of say, like, yeah, thanks, I made it, you did great, before they take off. Um, and then the last class of the day, which was by far the most exhausting, was a class of probably 25 to 36 graders, so 11 year olds. Um, it was after lunchtime, so you could imagine, right? Lots of sugar. So we were just talking the other day, you know, you see a lot of kids that are on medication these days, a lot of kids on. Adderall and different focusing medications. But when you see what the kids are eating at lunchtime, they're eating like Lunchables and like sugar food. like They're eating just processed sugary. And it's like, so no wonder that their minds are kind of jumping all over the place and scattered because the diet, the parents don't get it. They don't know that the diet is actually affecting their minds. They're feeding them kind of junk, garbage food. And then their minds are all over the place and they're giving them medication to calm the mind down as if like to you know, just keep throwing new things at the problem instead of really understanding the causes, right? Um, <coughs> so, as I started, you know, talking to this class and just kind of doing my initial hangout with them in chat, it became very obvious to me that they had a lot of energy, that they were kind of breaking off into little groups and talking within the thing, and um, there was a lot of class clowns all in this one room at the same time, it seemed. So I kind of just looked at it, and I said, how about we play a game? And everyone was really excited, and I said, okay, we stand up, and we make a circle. So they stood up, and they stood in a big circle around the, you know, all the chairs were empty in the middle of the room. We stood around the edge of the room together. I said, okay, first, take a few deep breaths, and, you know, of course, (whistles) like this, making all these funny noises and laughing at themselves and each other. And I said, okay, and let's shake out. And they're all shaking out. And I was like, and it's the end of the day, so let's do the end of the day dance. And they're all like dancing. And I said, okay, so now we're going to play a game. And the teacher stood up and came over and I said, okay. So we're going to play the counting game. And I said, the way this game works is that we have to count to 10 together. Okay. So we have to count again to 10 together. And in a way that People will just randomly say numbers, so you'll just randomly say one, then two, then three, just randomly say numbers when it comes to you. But if two people say the same number at the same time, if two people say three, then we have to start again at one. And they're like, okay, ready? So someone says one, and two kids say two. And I said, oh, okay, start again. Okay, one. Two, three, three. Ah. Ah, okay, they're laughing. Okay three kids at the same time go, one, oh, okay, start again, okay, one, two, two, ah, and you could see slowly that they're getting frustrated, that they're trying to find ways out of it, you could see their minds, they're like, okay, well, why don't we just do it in order, I was like, nope, no systems, okay, one, two, three, four, five, nope, sorry, only one person can say one number, um, okay, and they'd be like, one, they point at somebody, I was like, no, you can't point, that's a system, and slowly getting to this point where they kept trying and trying and trying. And I was also really noticing that it was, you know, out of a class of 25 kids, you'd see the same six kids wanting to say numbers each time. So I kind of, you know, just watched a little bit and facilitated. And, it, you know, eventually, as the energy was getting more and more kind of like frenetic and frustrated, I said, okay, everybody take another breath. And then I said to them, you guys. This game is also to teach you how to listen, right? So we have two ears and one mouth. So we should probably listen twice as much as we talk. And I said, I know that a lot of you want to be the guy who says the number. I said, but sometimes it's more important to be the guy who holds space for someone else to do something. That you don't have to be the one in the center, that sometimes you can hold space, and that's even more valuable, that you can listen I was like, does that make sense? And like some kids were nodding and then right away one kid's like, one. And they're like, two, two. I'm like, no. I was like, if you're saying a number as I'm still talking to you, it means that you're probably that guy. I was like, just <laughs> wait and listen to me. I said, it's about listening. And they all kind of nodded and they're like, oh, yeah, okay. One, two, three, three. I was like, okay. So, and I kept saying to them, it's about listening, giving space, waiting, and they again, and again, and again, it's still, you know, another 10 times. And the teacher was there, and the teacher started getting frustrated. He's like, guys, what has he been saying? It's about listening. Right? Now, he's kind of getting into it, right? So eventually, I again stopped them. I said, okay, take another breath. And then I said, you know, don't think that you have to count, like, one, two, three, four, like, one after the other. I said why don't you leave space in between the numbers? Like, imagine that you have, like, an hour to do this. Imagine you have a lot of time. Yeah? Because if you think about it, if you were to space an activity like that over a day, if you'd sit here with people and we'd say, we have one whole day to count to ten together, then you would just be sitting and just kind of randomly, throughout the whole day, you'd hear, like, one, maybe, like, two hours later, two, right? Right? there's so much space that you wouldn't bang into each other. So I said to them, you know, I kind of said, you know, try giving it space, and really listening. And again, the same kind of thing that they someone started as I was speaking to them and they fell over each other again. It's like, you know, it's like you're going to keep falling over each other. And I said, why is it the same five kids that always need to be the one who says it? Like, let the other people try, you know. Kept kind of giving this impulse, impulse, impulse. And then finally, really about giving space, and I said, you know, Allow time in between each number, even like a few seconds, even like a minute. Like, really allow space and listen. Listen. And then one kid said one, and then I kind of held up my hands and I, you know, and I breathed deeply. And they kind of all looked at me, and then one kid said two, and they waited, and I breathed really deeply again, and someone said three, and I breathed. So I really made these like loud, exaggerated breaths, and then they kind of got it, and then slowly they counted, and then they made it to ten finally, and then they jumped on their desks screaming, and, ah! and then the teacher kind of, like, okay, everyone else. Not. And then afterwards I asked them, you know, what was that about? What was that about? And they said, you know, well, that's about patience, and it's about listening and waiting. And, and one girl said, yeah, I mean, some people seem to always really want the attention, and that seems to be what's happening. And then they bump into each other. And I said, like, yeah. Um, and also this thing about holding space, and I also at the end kind of said to them, you know, Honestly, it's not, it's not even that I necessarily had a certain teaching to teach you guys about this, um, but I just felt like you needed it. And I felt like it was actually a very rich lesson. I felt like there was actually really a lot in there. And, um, and it's funny because after class, the teacher said to me, he said, yeah, you know, first day of class, I asked them to sit in order by their name, like you know, in alphabetical order with their first name. And they said, but just to change it up, he said, but you have to do it without talking you know, to try it. And he's like, and I do this every year with all the classes, it's fine. He said, with this class, and he, like, named a couple of the kids specifically that, you know, I was kind of talking to during the class. He said, yeah, I had to help them because as I was giving the instructions to that, they were too busy talking to even hear what they were supposed to do. And it seemed like it was kind of something that he was dealing with on a, you know, on a larger basis was this idea of how to to get these kids to kind of realize that to start being more present and to think, develop that kind of social understanding in a different way. Um, and it's very interesting also in a class like that because, yeah, say you have 25 kids, you'll usually have just a little small handful of kids that are the ones always talking out, making jokes, doing this. But then you have the other two thirds of the kids that are kind of there, ready to go, like listening, waiting. you know, And almost like a lot of kids sometimes just spend like, their day in class waiting for everyone else to stop talking so like they can learn whatever they're supposed to learn that day. And I also mentioned, I said, it's interesting because also, you know, a lot of those people that usually take the background, um, I said this also gives them a chance to come, to come forward a little bit. Right, Some of the people in the back actually have a chance to speak out. So in a very short time today, in just these couple of hours, there's really just this, like I say, marathon. So there's just all of these experiences, one after the other, and each class is a whole kind of microcosm, right? a whole yeah, system of new kids, and new ways of thinking. And just by sitting and being with them, you could really see, oh, it has to do it that way, I have to do it that way, I have to be like this. That each, each class is a new situation. You have to, again, um, renegotiate your relationship to one after the other. <coughs> and, I mean, it's more, um, it's more visible like that simply because I was leading the group. So I really had to be on top of the energy of each new group. But when you step back and you also look at your life, you'll realize that your life is also kind of just a series of different microcosms that you jump into. Like you go home, right, so you have your home life, whatever that looks like, whether you have family or not, whoever's there at your home, what your home looks like, that space looks like, right, and then you step out, and even right away then maybe you have your your apartment or your neighborhood community, that suddenly you're in this social network of things, you're in your town, right? Then you'll go to work. And we all know that workplaces have their own group culture, the work mentality. I was just listening to NPR today, actually, and they were talking about what I would call the the scandals that are happening at Uber. That Uber was really this kind of male-driven testosterone kind of atmosphere, and a lot of the women there were you know getting hit on by the coworkers or sexually harassed and all this stuff, like right from the very beginning and it 's all you know happening like throughout the, the company, and it was a really big deal. I think they even wrote something in the New York Times about it um, you know that that we all have these workplaces that have their own mentalities that that you know if you 're in a company, that company has a mission statement and a kind of way of doing things, and then you have the, the owners and how they see things, and the managers and your coworkers, and you have that whole System that a lot of people, um, you know, do their best to navigate when they're there, but um, it's a system that, by and large, often we don't have any control over, right? You don't necessarily have control over your workplace, what's going on. You do your best to create a space for yourself that makes sense, but, yeah, you never know what you're getting. I mean, and you're also with all these people that maybe otherwise you'd have nothing to do with on a social level, but you still have to spend the day with them. And then you go and you're in traffic, a lot of us, and that's a whole nother world, just sitting there in these little boxes next to all the people in their little boxes, just waiting for whatever, that whole thing, going to the supermarket, whatever else. The Whole Foods world (laughs) that we go to sometimes. And then you have something like this, right? And suddenly we're in this place, and suddenly we had this whole crazy long busy day of all this stuff and all these impulses. Now suddenly we're sitting in this dark old auditorium on the floor with blankets, cushions, and towels in the dark, staring at each other. Yeah, whatever this is, right? And so I think it's also, as far as that's concerned, it's really important to, um, I gave a talk actually, I think two days ago at a, um, at a church for a church group of teens, and I said to them, try to... Um, For each interaction you have with somebody, try to interact with that person in a way that you're left with no residue. Because I'm sure we all have the experience of, like, arguing with people in our minds, even though it's, like, 12 years later. Do you guys know what I mean? Does anybody sometimes still, like, argue with people in their mind, even though the thing is finished? Am I alone? Can I see some hands? Anybody crazy with me? A couple of you. And I was saying how important it is to really, when you finish an interaction, to leave it in a way that you can really let it rest. That when you're finished with something, to be finished, really finished with it. And not, there's something you wanted to say, but you didn't. Sometimes it happens when you want to stand up for yourself. We were just recently in CVS, actually. And as we were leaving CVS, we were at the counter. This guy was leaving, and he turns around, and he's like, you know, I'm done with this place, and I'm done with these prices. You can get everything on Amazon Prime. And he's was going off. And the, and the cashier's just kind of staring at him, like, what is this guy's problem? And I said to him, like, yeah, then go to Amazon Prime. Like, what do you want? Get out. Like, you know, and everyone's like, um, I don't even remember. What was I talking about just before that? <laughs> <laughs> just got carried away in that, like, image. <laughs> What's that? Residue, right? <laughs> um, and the cashiers, they said, like, for them, like, they didn't, they didn't care. Like, like, he held them, and, they just, and, she's like, and she just said, I, yeah, I just really sat there staring at him until they realized he was being an ass. And then he actually ended up saying, "Like, well, it's not the people that work here, it's the corporation. And we're like, OK, then go talk to the corporation. But in that moment, when he was yelling and everyone was just sitting there listening to him, like, I felt like I'm not interested to sit here listening to this guy talk. So I like, had to say, like, then go. Like, go to do Amazon Prime. Like, get out. Like, you know, I felt like it just came out of me because I felt like that's me setting a boundary. I'm not interested to be in a store. And it's CVS in the middle of... Like, who comes in the CVS in the middle of the, At, like, noon and starts yelling about, like... Oh, Jesus, go home, you know. <laughs> Do something with your life, right? But... So in that moment, I really felt... It, and it didn't matter if it brought any results or anything, but I felt, you know, I don't want to be carrying that guy's energy around with me all day long. So I felt for me to say that to him, that was my way of taking his energy and giving it back to him. And being like, good, then go to Amazon Prime, get out. You know, I don't, I don't want to carry... Because if you don't say anything, then you're carrying around that guy's stuff. You know, I wasn't interested. I had to set an, an energetic boundary, I guess we could call it. Right? So when I said that to this group of kids at the church, after the talk, one of them, it was really nice. She's like, well, you know, you said not to carry stuff around, so we have to say so. And then she kind of like opened up this whole thing about a comment I had made about um, mental disorders that I felt. I had a lot of anxiety and depression when I was a kid, and the monastery actually created a mental disease for myself because I was trying to fight against my thoughts for like a year and it was horrible and she kind of said you know you don't you can't create a mental disease they come to you and I was like and I kinda of challenged her on that because I actually don't think that's the case um but it was anyway it, it was a very it was a cool exchange anyway but um but that idea of, of not carrying residue with you because often when we sit here to meditate um, the stuff that's banging around inside of our mind, it's the kind of stuff that's unresolved. Just before class today, actually, I forgot to set my phone alarm. So I was, I fell asleep and I had kind of like a 30 minute long, uh, I wouldn't say it was a nightmare, but it was a stressful dream about me being like in a shopping mall and looking at my phone and it was 8 o'clock and I was like, oh my God, I have the class, I need to get there and how did it get so late and I didn't wake up and it was like this whole like long thing about me like trying to get here. And then like I woke up and I go and look and it's you know, five o'clock, and I think, like, oh my God. But, uh, but because I didn't set that down, I didn't you know, create that security and set that alarm then I could let it go, my mind was still carrying it and it took it into my dream world. And I was trying to process that in my dream. It was almost my mind like saying, oh, don't sleep too long or you'll miss meditation class tonight. You know? And so we'll see that the things that we haven't resolved, they. It, they stick to it. It's like sticky. They stay in there. You know. And it uses up a lot of our mental energy. It uses up a lot of our emotional energy and our mind space and just our energy. And really, um, you know, when you talk about like a spiritual being, you'll often talk about terms like freedom. They're, they seem very free. Or they seem very light. Right? Or they seem kind of joyful. Yeah? So freedom, lightness, joyfulness, those things all come from really having been able to put things down. The more things that you've been able to resolve, the less you carry around with you. And the less you carry around with you, the more you're kind of able to be present, to have the space to be buoyant, because you're not, you're not being weighed down by things. Um, and above all, when you have your energy, you have more power to actually engage in life and in the world. My teacher in my monastery in Germany, he actually told me that he went to India once and he met Mother Teresa. And this was, you know, I don't even know how long ago, 20 years ago or more. And he said that he went, uh, I think it's in Calcutta, he went to Calcutta and they went to Mother Teresa's mission, I don't know what it would be called. And uh, and they, you know, said, hi, we're here and they're monks and they said we want to have an audience and she was really busy but they kind of, found a little slot of time for them to have an audience to meet. And so they go in and talk to her and, you know, the first thing he says is that she's actually like this big. She's like super, she was super short, a really small woman. But uh, they sat down with her and he said to her, how, how do you do this? How, how have you done this? You know? And she lifts up her hands and she does this. And she said, with empty hands. With empty hands, you can do anything. And in Buddhists, you know, understanding that would mean that when, you've, when you're not holding on to things, when you're not grasping things, when you're letting go, you're free. You're free to interact in the moment and do whatever's needed. And when Mother Teresa was asked, you know, how did you help these hundreds of thousands of people, she said, I didn't. I helped one person, and then I helped one person, and then I helped one person, and then I helped one person. So she didn't look at it as that big thing. She just saw that she's just helping that person who's in front of her. And then when that person leaves, she's let that person go so that she can fully be present for the next person. And then she's letting that go to be fully present for the next person. So all day long, she's able to be fully present and then to let go fully, and then to be fully present and to let go fully. And that way, it's not this exhausting thing that a lot of us know that we carry life around like a backpack full of rocks all these things that we haven't dealt with the process things we're still dealing with yeah that we really learn how to put something down there is an old uh, buddhist joke that a contractor he called the monastery and he said um, you know do you want to, shall we keep working on the monastery and the monk said no no we're we're finished and he's like oh you finished and he's like But the place is still half built. What do you mean you're finished? And then he just says, Yeah, well, what's done is finished. So, say we're finished. And then he said, Well, what are you doing? And the monk says, Nothing. And then he said, Okay. So, can I come over? He says, No, I'm busy. Call back tomorrow. He says, Okay. So he calls him back tomorrow and he says, Can I come over? No. He says, It's finished. He says, What are you doing today? And he goes, Nothing. He said, Well, that's what you're doing yesterday. And he said, Yeah, I'm not done still doing nothing. It was a bad joke. (laughs) But this idea of what's done is finished is really, it was like a beautiful part of this, right? Because everything is still moving, everything's in flow, everything's in flux. Yet your life is a a constant process that will continue until you end this life and then as we learned from a lot of the hospice workers and that continues. So it's always, it's always going to be the next thing. It's not like A lot of us has this idea one day we'll be done with work and we'll retire and then somehow life will be this open thing and we can la 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 dance in the rainbows. It's not the case. Life will always, there's always the next thing to do. There's always the next thing to do. Um, There is no end. And I think the kind of sooner you realize that, the more you really just become present in each situation and the more you also kind of learn how to leave that. and it really creates this sense of freedom and this flow. And it really allows you just to be present wherever you are and not to kind of drag old stuff around with you. You don't need to. I also said to that group, if you have a thought that comes up, you don't have to believe everything you think. Right? If I'm sitting here and somebody walks in the room and I think, oh, that's a, there's this really stupid person, you know, I don't have to then think, oh, yeah, that is a stupid person. Yeah, that, that is a stupid person. I don't have to... Take that thought and really stand behind it. You know, and I don't have to chastise that thought. I don't have to think, oh, that's not, oh, I shouldn't have thought that. That's not nice, that person. Is, that, he's probably great. You know, if somebody walks in and this thought comes up, oh, that's a really stupid person. That thought's already gone by itself. And then that person comes in you're like, hey, how are you doing? And then you can totally just be present with that person. So you don't have to believe your thoughts either. That stuff also is just kind of coming and going. Even your thoughts don't have to leave residue. One of my teachers, Achim Brown, said it's like a non-stick frying pan, right? This, your thoughts just slide off of your mind all by themselves if you let them. Yeah. You can have a thought, and you can just let it slide right away. You don't have to make more of it. You don't have to proliferate it, keep it going, add stuff to it, feel good or bad about it, comment on it, have opinions about it. Yeah, because where do thoughts come from? You know? Why? Who says your thoughts are you? I'd say most of your thoughts are probably like your mom and your dad inside of you, right? The way that my dad yells at cars when we're driving on the road. You know, I'll see somebody and I'll hear my dad's voice yelling at that car in front of me. That's not me. I don't care. You know? So really learning to let go, to let things kind of slide past, to not leave residue, and to deal with stuff, right? So that doesn't also mean, right, being shanti shanti passive, Right, like at CVS, sometimes you also say to that person, no, I'm not, I'm not interested in this. So setting boundaries is just as important. Yeah, Equally valid, to set boundaries or do nothing, whatever it is that it needs in that moment. So there's no recipe, there's no formula. It's not like there's one way to do life. Every situation calls for something different. Each of the classes of kids, I had to be a different person. I had to give a different teaching. Yeah, in each life situation, you're going to have to Deal with it differently, like a Jackie Chan movie. Jackie Chan, Jackie Chan. Fights this guy this way, then this guy has to kick a lot, then this guy has to like use a ladder. Each thing, it's different, right? He's getting attacked from all sides, and each it's always these different techniques. Dun, 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 dun. It's like life. You have, to, you have to just be present, and you have to deal with that the way it has to be dealt with, and deal with that the way it has to be dealt with. And it's always going to be different, so you build up a repertoire. But ultimately, you know that the goal... Is that you kind of all those bad guys have left you alone. Quote unquote bad guys. All those guys have left you alone and you don't have to fight anymore, right? That you're free. That Jackie Chan walks away at the end and he's like, ah, no residue. Made it. So tonight's talk is called Make Your Mind Like Jackie Chan. Any questions, comments? Definitely talked about a lot. give you five seconds to think about it. Okay, so I guess we'll get ready for meditation.